It's just so good to see you today. We're, we're in this series called The Jesus Life, and <clears throat> for all of us who grew up in religion, and I did, and I got a lot of beneficial things from it, I do think sometimes we struggle to know what would the Jesus life be, and I, I think a great frustration of people, especially people who are not sure they're people of faith yet. I think one of the frustrations they feel in exploring is they hear a talk about this and a talk about that, and they hear that this is right and this is wrong, and there's a, a question of what would it really be like to live comprehensively and collectively the Jesus life. And so that's what this series is about. And so I, I know, of course, that they, the big answer to that question is, if you want to know how to live the Jesus life, then you go to this book, because the Bible is the Word of God. But it's a very big book. So what if, we, what if we were looking for the cliff note version of the Jesus life? Bible scholars through the years have said that there's one book in the Bible, a short book, only five chapters long and with short chapters, that there's one book that probably better than any other gives us the Jesus life. And so we've been exploring that book for the last four weeks and we'll continue to do, do so for two more. Uh, the book is 1 John. Now, I haven't spent a whole lot of time dealing with the history of this book because frankly, we've had so much to cover in these talks. But just so that you'll understand, 1 John is written by the disciple named John whom Jesus called. If you've read the New Testament, you'll know on several occasions Jesus would take a subset of the disciples, three of them, and they would experience things the others would not get to experience. And that set was Peter, James, and John. The John is the guy that we're talking about here. When you look at the disciples, it is so interesting to me that these were not people with halos. Uh, they were people like you and me, and their own personalities come into play in their ministry, their writing, and their speaking. Now, being a person with ADD, a short attention span, and somebody who likes people to get right to the point, I love the writings of Peter, because Peter clearly had ADD. I mean, I had a, I had a great, one of the nation's top psychiatrists ask me one time, he's a believer, he said, who in the Bible had ADD? And we both said Peter instantly, no doubt about it. And so when you read uh, the two epistles that bear his name, and there is the gospel of Mark is really Peter's story, Typical Peter, I think he just told Mark, put your name on there. But uh, you know, if you read that gospel, it gets right down to business. You know, It's like the ministry of Jesus Christ, boom, and we're off to the races. So I think that's why Peter was an engaging speaker. No doubt that was why God chose him on Pentecost, uh, because Peter could get right to the point, and he could say things that people could understand. Uh, so that's Peter. On the other hand, you have somebody like James. James is very austere. If you read the book of James, you know, you better take a deep breath before you read that. And Paul is very intellectual. He had the, the reasoning, and I, I love to read his writings. But when you read the writings of John, they have a very devotional, a very spiritual feel to them. And I think that's because of all the disciples, John was the closest to Jesus. When you read the stories of the interaction of the disciples with John and Jesus, John seemed to get it more than anybody else. And I believe Jesus was closest to him among the disciples because when Jesus was dying on the cross, he said to John, I want you to take Mary into your home and be a son to her. And he said to Mary, John is gonna take care of you. Now, you don't give your mama to somebody unless you really are close to that person. So when you look at John, I want you to think about, here is a guy I think that probably got what Jesus was saying probably more than any of the other disciples. Now, here's something else, and we'll get out of this real quickly. But the, the book of 1 John is written toward the end of the first century. I believe it's one of the last books written uh, as, the, the, as the Bible was being completed. John was the youngest of the apostles, so he lived the longest. We also believe that John is the only one of the, of the disciples who did not die a martyr's death. The Romans tried to kill him. They tried to kill him with scalding oil, but they failed, and he lived through it. 
and he went on to pastor the church at Ephesus. And I believe at the, at the time he wrote this book, he was getting close to 90. And he was still pastoring as he came upon 90. And on top of that, he must have been a very effective pastor because the Romans decided they wanted to get rid of him. And so they arrested him and banished him to this cold rock pile in the Aegean Sea called the island of Patmos. And when they put him out there all by himself, they said, there, that'll shut him up. But it didn't shut him up. In fact, he got out there and God lit him up and gave him the book of Revelation, which either... Either the epistle of 1 John or Revelation is probably the last book of the New Testament era uh, of the apostles. So really, this this book is written, I'm guessing, somewhere around 80, 90. It's been about 60 years since Jesus went back to heaven, and things are getting a little fuzzy on what the Jesus life is. And it is to that occasion that John wrote this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he didn't write it to a specific group of people, a particular church. He just wrote it to Christians everywhere. And so for us... Even though we don't live in the first century, I want you to take this book as though it's written to you personally. Now, as we've explored up till now, and we continue to explore this book of 1 John, what we discover is that the Christian life is very simple. In fact, there is one thing, and when you read this book, you can't can't escape this. There is one thing that that the Jesus life is all about, and that's love. Anything else that God commands will telescope back into love. We know this from Jesus himself. He said in the Gospel of Matthew that all the commandments telescope back into love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So if the Jesus life is all about love, then it's fitting for us that we would take these three weeks to just look at what the Bible has to say in the book of 1 John about love. Now, normally, I brand each message. Sometimes I'm too cute by half in doing that, but I usually brand each message. As you will notice if you've been here for the last few weeks, we didn't do that this time. We've had true love part one, true love part two, and true love part three, and there's a reason for that. And if you're just here for the first time today, let me, let me ask you to do something. I want to ask you to like look at, this, look at the whole message. Watch week one, watch week two, because you will need those first two weeks for today's talk to fully make sense. Today, I just want to talk to all of you who have been listening to this and you've said, I think I get it. You're like John. You're just like, I believe I get this. I believe I get Jesus' heart. I believe I know now what the Jesus life is about, and I'm going to love. And I fully understand what we've already covered, that the love that God has, the love that God wants us to have, is not the kind of love that the world emphasizes. We've learned already that it's not sexual or romantic love. That's got its place, but that's not what God's talking about. It's not the kind of love that makes you let somebody in traffic in front of you. That's a good thing, but that's not the kind of love God's talking about. It's not the kind of love that causes you to pet your dog or love chocolate ice cream. Okay? It's not even the love of friendship. This is the kind of love that God pours down on us and through us. We spent a whole week, and again, if you haven't had a chance to watch this talk, let me encourage you to go back to the first talk on love because what we did is we opened 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and we got a look at what love really is. There's that list of things that love does. It's, it's long-suffering. It puts up with things for a long time. It's kind. It doesn't trash talk. It's not arrogant. It always believes the best. It never quits, and you know that list. That's the kind of love that God has for us and he pours through us, and it comes out of us. So let's just say that you've decided to have that kind of love in your life, and it's beautiful, and you're excited about it, and you're saying, you know, really for the first time, I really get the comprehensive Christian life. It's about loving. It's about loving God and loving people. 
Well, I want you to know that anything, and you don't need me to tell you this, but anything worthwhile in life is going to have challenges. Anything easy is probably not valuable. And that's what saddens me sometimes. We have a culture that is looking for the easy way, looking for instant gratification. You know, we're so accustomed to having instant information, instant whatever we want, that we've almost gotten the feeling that everything is easy in life. But anything important, anything valuable, marriage, child rearing, a successful career, friendships, anything value, valuable is going to have challenges. Now, here's the thing I want to do in today's talk. And and let me just give you a little bit of background for this. I was really only going to preach two messages on love. But as I began to inhale this book, I began to realize that we need to have a third week and just talk about the love traps. We need to talk about the challenges to love. Because when you decide that you're going to love like Jesus loved, you're going to find out that there are three challenges. And we find these in the book of 1 John. So here we go. We're going to be pretty much in chapters 4 and 5 today. If you have a, if you have a, a material Bible, if you're on an electronic device and you're looking at an app, we're primarily going to just be in those two chapters. And again, I, I want to just say one more time, these are not sermons. These are workshops. So I'm not going to really preach. I'm just going to give you what the Bible has to say. And then I hope that you'll take this and you'll personalize it in your own life. So here is the first challenge to love. You ready? This is 1 John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us, see the big word there? Let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Well, I really think that the first trap that I see in this book for love is what I would call the love fatigue trap. You know, when you do something that's challenging, there is a fatigue factor in it. Anything that's important in life, you're going to have a quit now moment. You're going to have a moment where it's like, can I really go on doing this anymore? And so for the Bible to tell us to continue in love, it shows us that when we decide that we're going to love, we could have a moment where we just say, I just don't think I'm going to love her anymore. I really believe I've done about all I can do. I just don't know that I can love him anymore. I think I've loved him to my limit. So here is the thing that we need to start with, okay? Let's look at this line. It is hard to love. That's true. I mean, remember, this is not a feeling. The Bible tells us we're commanded to love. So this is not, it's not a feeling. It's hard to love. Isn't it true? It's hard to suffer with someone a long time. It's hard to be kind to certain people. You know, it's hard to put others ahead of your own self. It's hard to be consistent and not quit loving. It's, it's hard to do that. But it's even harder to keep on loving when it gets difficult. Well, I'm going to give you some reasons in just a moment, but they all go back to one statement. Here's that statement. We're broken people trying to love broken people, right? We're broken people, so we got problems inside of us, and they got problems. And so broken people trying to love broken people, it's hard to love. It's even harder to keep loving. Now, I've got three or four reasons here for us to focus on why it's a hard thing to keep loving. And here's the first one. Whenever you're in a relationship of any kind, Previously undiscovered flaws and weaknesses will show up. Well, that's the problem with marriage, isn't it? You date, and it's like, oh, yeah, he does a few, few things that are kind of weird, but it's kind of cute. It's cute when you're dating. It ain't cute when you're married, right? <laughs> and so it isn't long before it's like, you know, I, you know, I, I, I kind of saw some of this when we were dating, but boy, now that we're married, and here's what we humans do. We say, I was deceived. Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes there is deception. 
But you know what it is? You know, when we're, when we're like initiating any kind of relationship, we're on our best behavior. We're putting our best foot forward. Well, all of a sudden, marriage gives opportunity for all these flaws and weaknesses to show up. Same thing is true of child rearing. Same thing is true of parenting. And by the way, for all of you parents who are struggling to deal with your kids, don't forget they're struggling to deal with you. It's true, in the workplace, you know, you get a job, it's like, oh, this is the most wonderful place in the world, you know, these are the best people, they're all wonderful. Give it six weeks. <laughs> hey, we're humans, we're flawed. And so the longer we know people, uh, undiscovered flaws and weaknesses show up. Now, I wanna get real serious with you for a moment. And, and again, I, I realize that many people live together before getting married, so I'm not trying to bring any kind of condemnation, I just want you to think with me for a moment. Our culture has looked at this and said, okay, we've seen other relationships where all these flaws and weaknesses show up, so we're, we're going to do something. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hedge our bets. We're going to live together, and then we're going to see if it works. That may make sense on the surface, but hear me for just a moment. I mean, aside from the adultery issue that we need to talk about, but hear me about something. Somebody, at least, at least one person in that relationship realizes that she has been put on trial. Somebody knows they're on trial. They're on trial to see if not enough weaknesses and flaws rise to the threshold of, you're out of here. Now here's the deal, just being honest, there's no love in that relationship. Do you know that couples who live together and then ultimately get married, they suffer much higher rates of divorce than couples who don't live together before they get married? And there's a practical reason for that. Because I think there's something inside of a person that realizes all the time that she was not loved and finally she's crossed the threshold and passed the test. But there's something that goes wrong at that moment. So if you're, if you're living together and you're not married, I, please, if you, if you believe this is God's will, you can rise above this and you can love and get married and go on and do what you should do. So I, I'm not trying to discourage you, but I'm trying to unpack this for us so that we'll understand. And we'll see this throughout this entire talk. Our culture is upside down. And if you get your ways of looking at things from the culture, you're going to be so screwed up that it's going to, here's the thing, when you hear what God has to say, it's going to seem upside down. But it's not upside down, it's just right side up. We live in an upside down culture. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a few moments. Okay, here's the second reason why it's difficult to keep loving. Our own stresses and troubles can shrink our love capacity. Do you ever feel like saying, you know what, I, I just don't have the bandwidth to love right now. You know, I, I'm just going through so much stress and so much trouble right now. When my situation's resolved, then I'm going to be able to love again. A couple things real quickly. First, number one, your situation is never going to resolve. You're a broken person living in a broken world. You're always going to have problems. But here's the second one, and please, this is so big. If you're going through a lot of stress and difficulty, the most emotionally healthy thing you can do right now is love somebody else. Love God and love people. I remember the worst single night I've had in my 33 years of pastoring New Spring. It was 14 years ago, and we were beginning the transition. And I won't, I won't go into it. We'll, if you want to see the whole story, you can go back to a series I did called um, Divine Whispers. It's, it's week two. But let's just say it was the worst. I, I, went, I went home from a meeting uh, when we were just beginning the transition to become New Spring. It was so brutal. I just went home and sat in my basement and shell-shocked trying to figure out what to do. 
I mean, while I was sitting there trying to figure out how I could survive, my phone rang, and a pastor called me from another state, and he was crying. And he was going through a huge moment of temptation. Had he given in, it would have blown up his family, would have blown up his ministry, it would have blown up his whole life. And so he was sobbing, and he said, Mark, I knew if there was one pastor I could call, if I was one friend I could call in the country who wouldn't judge me, who would listen to me and love me, and I would be safe with, he said, I knew it would be you. And he said, would you pray for me? Now, let me just tell you this. At that moment right then, I was almost mad. I'm like, God, I'm going through the worst thing in my life, my worst thing in my ministry. Why would you have somebody else call me who's struggling where I've got to just take my mind off what I'm going through and focus clearly on what he's doing? But God gave me the grace to do it, and I prayed with him, and God gave him victory. But here's what God taught me in that moment. God is saying, Mark, I'll take care of your problems, and he did. And you look around. God is saying, Mark, I'll take care of your problems. I just called you to love. That was a, there was a reason why that phone call came that night. I mean, clearly, God helped me to minister to him. But God ministered to me. It was his way of showing me, look, Mark, don't, don't, don't worry about all the stuff you're going through. I'm your God. I, I love you. I'll take care of you. You just love God and love people. And I really believe that was one of the most therapeutic things that ever happened to me. So our own stresses and troubles can shrink our love capacity. Here's another one. Time creates opportunities for issues to divide us. Any relationship that you, in a, in a loving relationship, whether it's friends, family, in-laws, time will give opportunity for problems to happen. I, I've shared this with you before. In this age of social media, so many people have come to me through the years and they said stuff like this. Mark, I reconnected with somebody I went to high school with. I haven't talked to this guy in 20 years. I haven't, seen, I haven't talked to her in 30 years. And we just reconnected and it's like no time had passed. We just like jumped right back. That's not a miracle. Really, it's not. I mean, I, I did, had that happen this year. My best friend, when I was in middle school and high school, I haven't talked to him in, my gosh, we graduated from high school in 74, so I haven't talked to him in forever. I didn't know what happened to him. I knew he was an extreme, extremely good musician. He went on to be a band director in a big Dallas school. He's a worship pastor now at a great church in Dallas, and he was surprised to find out I was pastoring a great church, listening to some of the sermons. I was talking to him on the phone and thinking about what we were like in high school, and I said, Will, you know it's a miracle. God didn't kill us both. He should have. And yet here we are in ministry. It's no miracle. See, here's the thing. Will and I haven't had 35 years, 40 years to upset each other. See, the, 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 the challenge would be, could you see somebody every day for 30 years and still be able to get along? See, time just gives opportunity for problems to come up. You know, in Genesis chapter 31, there's an interesting verse that I think about. And if you've dealt with friendships through the years, probably this verse is going to mean something to you. There were a couple of guys that were really close at first. And they were a nephew and an uncle, and and Jacob was the nephew, and Laban was the uncle, and they kind of went into business together. There's this verse in verse uh, chapter 31 of Genesis. The Bible says, Jacob saw the face of Laban. It was not favorable toward him as before. You ever just notice somebody's face is not the same towards you as it used to be? Sometimes you don't even know what you did wrong. You just know her face is not the same. And some of you are looking at me saying, yeah, it's my wife. I'm sitting right next to her right now. (laughs) Could I give you just some practical advice? If you're married, if you have a friendship, if you're working with people, just prepare for problems to come up. Just prepare yourself. We're human. You know what? This person's going to do something that upsets me someday. And when that happens, just say, I was prepared for this. I knew this was coming. Here's the last one. 
And maybe you'll think of others, but familiarity or commonness. Someone has said familiarity breeds contempt. You know, when you first make a friend, it's like, well, that's the greatest person in the world. I can't wait to see her. But then give it three or four or five years. And after a while, you know what? Person is just not the same anymore. It's human, but it's a problem. We saw this a couple of weeks ago with Jesus on the night of his arrest when he was washing the disciples' feet. And we said, in just a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to go through several kangaroo court trials. He's going to be beaten half to death. They're going to nail him to a cross at 9, in 9 o'clock the next morning. He's going to begin hanging there for six hours, paying for the sins of the world. After sweating drops of blood the night before in Gethsemane, if there ever was a time for the disciples to reach out to Jesus and say, what can we do for you? It was that night. But they didn't. In fact, we know why they didn't take care of Jesus because on the way into the dinner, they had been arguing over who was the most important. Now, here's my question. How does the Son of God become commonplace? I mean, what would you give? What would you give for 30 minutes with Jesus? I do not have a material possession that I don't believe I would, I mean, I don't have any material possession I wouldn't give for 30 minutes with Jesus. I mean, he can answer all your questions. He can fix all your problems. And these guys had three years with him. But you know what happened? Over the years, it just became another day with Jesus, another day with Jesus, another day with Jesus, until they got to the place where the night of Jesus' arrest, they wouldn't even wash his feet. Wow. If Jesus can become common, our friends can become common. So these are, the, I think, four of the reasons why it's a challenge to continue loving because we get into love fatigue. And so it's good for us today, as the Bible commands us to continue in love, it's great for us to remember how to rise above these challenges. And I believe this is the key. Let's go back to our verse right now. It's First John 4, verse 7. The Bible says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another. Look at this word. For, um, it's the same as our because. Let us continue to love one another because love keeps coming from God. So in other words, I need to remember to continue to love the people in my life because God is continuing to love me. You know what? I can be difficult to love. I can create issues. I mean, if I've ever given anyone a reason not to love me, I've given God reasons not to love me. And yet God continues to love me. Look at this. This is in Lamentations 3, verse 22. The Bible says, his compassions fell not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Listen to me, please. There could be somebody here today and you say, Mark, I just cannot continue to love because it's too difficult. Do you realize that God falls in love with you new every morning? God has loved you all your life, and yet every morning he falls in love with you over again. And so the Bible says, if God is continuing to fall in love with me, with all of my failures, then I can continue to love other people, okay? Let me just let you know before we go into the second one, it's going to get a little tense because, again, remember we said the world's upside down, and if we think that the world being upside down is right side up, then we can think that God is upside down, and this is going to be a really big moment. So I want you to just please kind of hold on to this because this is going to be so counter to 21st century America. I want to talk to you about the tolerance trap. And I put tolerance in quotation marks because what what passes for tolerance today is not tolerance. Tolerance is a good thing. But we live in a world today where what we have is we have a complete redefinition of right and wrong. And the word tolerance gets thrown in there. Let me prove to you that it isn't about tolerance. The one thing that no one tolerates today in our culture at large is truth. 
You can, you, can, you can spout any kind of lie, and there will be tolerance for it. You can tell the truth, and the charge you're going to hear is you are unloving. For instance, let's just go through a few of these subjects. You can talk about Jesus being the way to heaven, and if you believe that, then you're considered unloving. If you believe, that, if you believe what God says about sexual behavior, then you're considered unloving. If you believe what God says about gender identity, then you're considered unloving. Even if you point out terroristic behavior that emanates from radicalized extremism, which is the one that surprises me perhaps the most, if you just call that into question, the ideology of it, then you're considered unloving. And I think all of us worry with that because we see and we hear behavior that we know is 180 degrees away from what God says, but our culture today says that what God says is wrong is right, and what God says is right is wrong. And even as Christ followers, in that world, in that complication, it's like, well, I, I, I do want to be loving, so maybe I need to rethink what God says. Well, I want you to see a verse here. You ready? This is 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. And again, we're talking about God's love. Look at this. We know we love God's children if. So how, how do we know we love people? Because our culture says we know we love people if we agree with anything. But listen to what God says. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Let's look at the next verse because it's going to give us a really big verb. Loving God means keeping his commandments. Now, keeping his commandments is different from obeying. We know what obeying means. Keeping means guarding. So in other words, God is saying, look, we know we love people if we guard what God has to say. Now, the word guard there means to take care of something, to keep it from being stolen. And that's what we see in our culture today. There's this attempt to steal away what God has to say as being right. And the Bible is saying, here's the deal. We love people if we care about what God has to say. Here's the upshot. Let me, let me state this. We're going to look at, the, we'll look at the positive side and the negative side. The upshot is we know we love people when we hold on to God's truth. Conversely, we know we don't love people. We don't love people if we let go of God's truth. Here is a statement that you cannot avoid if you, if you look at the, G, the whole book of 1 John hits this over and over again. There is no God's love without God's truth. One more time. There is no God's love without God's truth. Now, someone could say, well, Mark, <clears throat> I don't understand. I thought that loving was affirming everybody. Well, it is. It's true. Loving is affirming everyone. But there is a quantum difference between affirming everyone and affirming all behavior. Anyone who does not understand that there's a massive distinction between affirming people and affirming behavior has no business being a parent. If a person feels like, I must affirm all behavior to affirm the person, you sure have no business ever having a child. Because here's the thing, every parent understands that you love your children enough to die for them, but you have to tell them the truth about what is right and what is wrong. A person doesn't understand that there's a difference between affirming people and affirming behavior. Certainly, you don't want that person managing anyone, and you probably don't even want to give them a job. Because there's a huge difference, one more time, between affirming people and affirming behavior. Let me give you an example of this. This is absurd, but still, let me just take it from absurdium. 
Suppose you meet me after, after church and I'm out in the lobby and, and I'm telling you, hey, <clears throat> I'm starting a new diet this week. I need to. And so uh, you say, well, well, which diet are you starting, Mark? You know, um, you going vegan, you use paleo, you, you know, what, what, what di- you know, Weight Watchers, what diet are you going to start? Well, I'm making it up myself. Uh, okay. Well, what, what's your diet? Well, I love chocolate ice cream and I do. That's storge love. That's not agape love. Okay. I love chocolate ice cream. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have chocolate ice cream for breakfast. I'm going to have chocolate ice cream for lunch. I'm going to have chocolate ice cream for dinner. And I'm going to have chocolate ice cream for snacks. I'm not going to eat anything but chocolate ice cream. We'll eat it all day. Now, how are you going to react to that if you love me? Well, you know, if you're part of our culture today, you would say, well, I don't want to offend Mark. Uh, and maybe you might say, this is 21st century postmodern stuff. You know what? It's not right for me. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think I would want to eat chocolate ice cream all day long. It's not, my, it's not true for me, but maybe it's true for Mark. You beginning to see how silly some of this stuff is? Or it could be, you know what? Maybe Mark was born to eat chocolate ice cream. Maybe he has a chocolate ice cream gene. I think I do. If I told him it was wrong, he might be psychologically affected. And I have to affirm his behavior, whatever it is, because that is what love does. Now listen, that might be something, but it's not love. It's not love. It's silly, is what it is, but it's not love. If you love me, you're going to say, Mark, I love you, but that, that's not good for you. You know what? You're going to get sick of chocolate ice cream. It's not going to make you happy. You're going to wreck your health. And you realize you've got other people standing around you. And if you say, well, it's okay, but you don't believe it's okay, then they could hear that and say, well, I guess it's good. I mean, Mark's got a great idea. You see what I'm saying? I mean, even now we feel the tension. And some of you have checked out, but it's because you've embraced the world system. And consequently, you're part of a platform that's, you're going to have company. But the problem is it's upside down. And we're going to see from 1 John, it's going to go away. Like John said in week one, the light's already shining. God, God's program is running right on schedule. Now, here's the thing that somebody could say, well, Mark, I'm still struggling with this because I do want to affirm people and I don't want to push them away. And yet at the same time, I, I, I get what, what the Bible is saying here. Jesus is our example because remember, this is the Jesus life. I want you to look at a statement about Jesus. This is in the gospel of John chapter one in the 12th verse. The Bible says that Jesus was full of grace and look at this, truth. How does that work? How does grace and truth work? Thankfully, Jesus gives us a great example of this. There was a woman who was having sex with somebody who was not her husband. She was caught in the very act. And this religious elitist uh, took her away, probably naked, and threw her at Jesus' feet and said, Moses in the law commands that you stone her. What do you say? Okay, I want you to look at Jesus' statement. By the way, when Jesus was put on the cross, he was put on the cross by the ultra-conservative religionists and also by the most liberal progressivist of his time. When you look at this statement, you can see why both groups got together to put him on the cross. Look at this. Jesus said to the woman after her accusers had gone away because Jesus confronted them with their own sin. Jesus said to the woman, then neither do I condemn you. And then he said, Go and leave your life of sin. Now, the religious elitist, the ultra-conservative, would say, 
well, I don't get what, I don't, I don't understand why Jesus said I don't condemn you. But on the other hand today, we have a whole population who would say, how dare you say what she did was sin? And how dare you say that she should leave that life? You getting this? True love, God's love, affirms people, but it doesn't deny God's truth. Because the thing of it is, if I say to people, You're, even though God says this behavior is wrong, I'm going to say it's right, I flip God off. So consequently, I don't love God. Whatever, whatever, whatever it is that I'm, whatever emotion I'm feeling toward people in order to fit into this crazy postmodern 21st century world, I clearly don't have love for God. And the Bible says, I don't have love for people. So today, I just want us to understand there is no God's love without God's truth. Last time I'm through. A few weeks ago, I told you that if you decided to live the life of love, that five things would happen. Number one, you would live the Jesus life. Number two, God would be pleased with you. Number three, you would be happy. Number four, you'd have the best possible relationships. And number five, you would have the best possible mental and emotional health. I want to talk about that last one this morning. And this is really important to me. I've been making notes and leaving them everywhere because there's one verse in the book of 1 John that is the most important verse to me because I struggle, with, um, I struggle with anxiety. I struggle with fear. I have an anxiety disorder. And so I was talking to, my, one of my, I was talking to Stephen this week, and I said, I really believe I've wasted a third of my life worrying about things that never materialized. Anybody else like that here today? So here's the deal. We're going we're gonna to look at a verse, and again, this is, this is the verse from 1 John that I'm trying to get in my own life. And we'll, we'll call the third trap, the fear trap, the fear trap. Here we go. Look at this verse. First John four eighteen. such love, we've been talking about God's love, such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. <laughs> Whenever you have to read this verse, I always think about when I was a kid, I, I had a great dog from the time I was three to the time I was 16. We called him Scotty. I don't he, no telling what kind of breeds he was. But, I mean, he, he was about that big around, and he had legs about that long, and he never saw a dog he couldn't whip. I mean, Scotty was just, he was something else. But he was smart. And, but because he was getting bigger, and I was just, you know, when I was about three or four years old when I first got him, my parents were, were afraid that maybe he was going to be too big for me. So for a while, they sent him down to my grandparents' house who lived on a farm in South Texas. And so the only time I'd see Scotty is when I went to see my grandparents. But I was so broken about losing my dog, my mom and dad decided they'd get another dog in the meantime for me to have. And we called, dad called this dog Poochie because all he did was eat and sleep. That was it. He was clearly not going to be a problem. I mean, the cats would come sleep in his doghouse. Still, Poochie had no problem with that. I mean, just, and I, I, I never really bonded with him. I just, just, he was just there, you know? And, and so, anyway, I remember, I'll make this story quick. When I was about six years old, my grandfather, my mom's dad was dying, and so my mom was down there quite a bit. And so my mom was calling me to see if I was okay, and both my grandparents lived in the same little town in Texas. And, and so my mom said, uh, well, Mark, is there anything I can bring you when I come home? I said, yeah, you can bring Scotty. Bring my dog. And so I think they were sympathetic with me, you know, because my mom had been gone a lot and taking care of my grandfather. So they brought Scotty home. And they let him out. And Scotty ran back to his house in the backyard, and he saw Poochie there. I'll never forget this day as long as I live. He grabbed Poochie by the neck. 
and he took him about three blocks south of our house. You could hear Poochie screeching all the way down. Scotty dropped him off, and he came back to the house, and he got into his house. Now, if you want to know the Greek for the verse that we've just looked at, the Bible says, love is like Scotty, and fear is like Poochie. In fact, the Greek word means to throw out. Love is the bouncer of the soul. And basically what happens is you cannot have love in your heart and fear at the same time. And for somebody who's dealt with fear all my life, you know, the weird thing about this, and just being straight with you, I'm just, this is just heart to heart. I don't know that I would have thought love is my issue. I would have thought faith is my issue. But the Bible says that love kicks fear out. How does that work? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about the difference between the selfie life and the love life, because love and self can't, you can't live the selfie life and be a person of love. Love is all about others. Well, think about the selfie life for just a moment. And we have been, oh, Lord knows, I have been conditioned by our culture, you've been conditioned by our culture to believe it's about me. All the commercials, you got to have this product to be happy. You got to have this product to look cool. You got to have this product you know, if you don't have this new, if you don't have the iPhone 76, then you're just not, you know. Okay, we all hear that. So here's the thing. It's like, if I'm going to be happy, it's all about me. I've got to be perfectly healthy, have no health threats. Everybody's going to love me and nobody's got to be unhappy with me. And I have to feel good and I have to have everything I want. Well, we're never going to have that, are we? And so here's the thing. If I am conditioned to believe that it's all about me, I'm never going to have space to be at peace because I'm always afraid. I'm going to get sick and I'm going to lose my health and I'm going to lose my career and I may die and I won't be able to be with my relatives. So we worry about health things or what's going to happen with my career. If I lose my job, I'm not going to be who I am anymore. We just go through the litany of things that we're scared of because if it's about me, I got to have everything in place in order to be happy. The Bible tells us in 1 John here that if my life is all about God and you and other people in my life, then I won't have room to be afraid. I shared with you a moment ago, hey, I'm 61 years old, and I told my son, I've lived 20 years of my life being afraid of stuff that's not materialized. And I'm an older guy, and this is a young church, and a lot of you are really young. Would you just please listen to the heart of an old guy? You only have so many days. You only have so much bandwidth. You only have so much emotional real estate. You can't afford to spend one of your days in fear. Because you'll be unhappy. <laughs> you, won't, you won't have this emotional health that we all want to have. But if you love God and love people. You know, here's the thing. Let me just give you a verse. And I, I kind of passed this up a moment ago. But there's, I've been thinking a lot about this verse. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, it's also in Matthew. Jesus gave a sermon about the last days. And, and this, this thought has been on my mind for a long time. In, Ma in Luke 21, verse 26, Jesus, he says, in the last days, people's hearts will be failing them because of fear. Now, the Greek word for heart there is suki, P-S-U-C-H-E. We got our word psyche, 
Hence, all the words that begin with that prefix. So what, what, let me just give it to you in translation. Jesus is saying in the last days, people's psyches will be failing them because of the Greek word phobu. We got a word phobia from that. Isn't that what's going on today? People's, I mean, we, we've, never, we've never seen a time of, of, of emotional and mental health. And, and please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that love can cure all kinds of mental and emotional illnesses and, and, and treatment is good and I've been blessed by that. But here's the thing. <laughs> Exercise and good diet doesn't cure every physical problem, but it will put you in the place where you can have the best physical health possible. Love may not cure every one of our mental and emotional weaknesses, but it puts us in the place where we can have the best emotional health. The Bible tells us that love and fear can't be in the same place at the same time. How does this work? Okay, remember something, and I'll be finished with this, and I'm in overtime, sorry. Remember that this love is not like the other kinds of love. We said that romance, friendship, all of them are like cisterns or reservoirs that you dip out, but you have a limited supply. But this is a different kind of love. It's not a reservoir, it's a river. It flows from God through us. And so because that's the case, if you want to deal with fear in your life, and I'm working on this in my own life, how do you, how do you think? It's like, well, Mark, are you saying that I've got to love everybody and that's going to make fear go away? I don't think that's how it starts. You start by realizing God's love for you. You start your day by realizing, you know what, God loves me. And he's going to take care of me. And he sees me every moment of my life. He sees every instance. And, and here's the thing. I don't have to be afraid because he loves me and he's taking care of me. He has said he will supply all my needs according to his riches in Jesus. He has said to me that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's just sort of like that phone call I got that I talked about earlier. God was saying, Mark, if you'll take care of people, if you'll take care of those in your life and love them, I will take care of you. So I start by saying, if God is going to take care of me, I don't have to worry about me. If God falls in love with me afresh every morning, I'm going to be fine, so consequently I can afford to love people. And that's how fear gets dragged out, down the block, and let out. Thanks for listening to me. Thanks for being in overtime. God bless.